this week on the podcast, talking to the editor of Nonprofit Management 101, the textbook on the social sector. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. We're excited to bring you this episode talking to the editor, Darian rodriguez Hayman, the editor of the Nonprofit Management 101 Second Edition. This thing is like, it's like the front door to experts in the nonprofit sector. And we were super honored when he reached out to us to write a chapter about uh, website uh, redesigns and, and digital strategy uh, among 50 other professionals in the field. It's super practical because he framed it and he roped in and herded all of these great social sector leaders to to do this. What I want you to listen to is not just the certainly the, the lessons learned uh, about what the book covers, but the methodology. This is what I love. I love the methodology. He gathered these folks, he sold each one individually uh, with a narrative that spoke to them, spoke to the sector, and frankly produced a really great product. So take those pieces and, and uh, and see what you hear here. And I'm here with none other than Darian rodriguez Heyman, the editor of Nonprofit Management 101, a complete and practical guide for leaders and professionals, second edition. He's done it twice, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, how's it going, Darian? Doing great, George. Thanks so much for having me. And I know this is only one small part of a lot of the work you do in the sector, so maybe I'll throw it to you. Give me a rundown of, of all of your activities uh, and, and work in this sector and your areas of expertise. <laughs> no problem. Um, what I would say is, generally speaking, my work in the world is helping people help. So I work with nonprofit leaders, CEOs of mission-led businesses, and impact investors, folks who want to make the world a better place, and I connect them to best practices, helpful resources, and to the contacts that they need to maximize impact. I do that in a very wide number of ways. So I am a part-time executive director of a small corporate foundation for Numi Organic Tea. I am the editor-in-chief of a popular online magazine for nonprofits called Blue Avocado. Uh, I am also the co-producer of a global summit around gender lens investing called the Gender Smart Investing Summit. And then I have a pretty active uh, consulting, coaching, and public speaking practice. So. Right now, I'm working uh, with a big team I mobilized with the Trust for Public Land to create their first ever national strategic plan. I do a lot of fundraising, board, and strategic planning and storytelling work. And then I also work with conference organizers, either as a keynote or uh, as an MC, and helping them to dial more interactivity uh, and make their, their conferences more dynamic. I would have to, Darian, also add, uh, you're a professional cat herder, it seems. You got 50 people, 50 people to contribute to this nonprofit management 101 book, uh, including and not limited to uh, myself and our team. Uh, and I, I just like, what drove you to do that? It sounds like <laughs> a daunting task. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a very firm believer in the premise that the rope is stronger than the thread. And especially when it comes to social impact, I feel like there's a huge need in the sector for us to actively embrace collaboration. 
Um, and I also, you know, I, I used to be the executive director of Craigslist Foundation, which is where I kind of discovered this life's mission of helping people help. Um, and when I was there, I started something called the Nonprofit Boot Camp that was kind of like Lollapalooza for nonprofits, a one-day conference that covered all aspects of starting and running a nonprofit. And actually, the publisher, Wiley & Sons, uh, the biggest nonprofit publisher, pitched me on turning that into a book. Um, and I had always wanted to write a book. It was sort of like on my bucket list. And, um, and it, we didn't have the capacity to do that when I was running the foundation. But as I transitioned out, I got the board's approval to take it on as a solo project. And so I reached out to a bunch of my uh, friends in the space and some of the, the people I respected the most came up with sort of a, a common and consistent chapter format to make sure that all of the insights that they shared um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of vague, abstract concepts and theories out there, whether it's in books or conferences, and not enough tactical, practical tips and tools. And so that's what I wanted to do, combined with the idea of, you know, there's not really like a Google for good or like a front door to the movement. And I wanted one book that really boiled the ocean, covered the entire spectrum of all aspects of how to run a nonprofit. And that's where Nonprofit Management 101, the first edition, was born. It was basically boot camp as a book. Uh, and then since then, the book's done really well. It's still been in the Amazon's top 10 nonprofit books after about eight years. And so Wiley just uh, about a year ago asked me to do a second edition. And obviously, there's been quite a few changes in the world the last eight years. And so I rounded up some amazing folks like yourself and Van Jones and uh, you know Paul Rice, the founder of Fair Trade, to add in a, a few new pieces of content uh, as well as working with all the original contributors to update their original contributions. What I love is you also have a, a forward by Amidar, and I have to quote it because it's exactly what I thought when you originally reached out to me. Uh, and I'll just like quote directly here is, uh, when Darian told me about this book and asked to write the forward, two thoughts immediately came to mind. The first was, really? Another <laughs> introduction to the sector? Do we really need this? But then I saw the list of authors Darian had assembled, many of whom I've known for years, and it was clear that he couldn't have found a better group of people to write this. The second thought was a wish, a wish that when I started Idealist.org in 1995, I could have this amazing group of people whispering in my ear and stopping me from making some of the bigger mistakes I've made over the years. I kind of love that as a, as a summary, and if you're going to boil the ocean, you might as well do it with uh, many threads. And in doing it, what what did you learn uh, along the way is what I'm, I guess, curious about. So I, I think we spend so much time reinventing the wheel in the world of social impact. And at the end of the day, it's very different than the business world where I actually started my career. And, you know, I, I've done this exercise where I've been in front of an audience of a couple thousand people and I've asked them, how many of you are thinking of starting a nonprofit? And the boot camp audience was about a third um, you know, startups. And so you'd have hundreds of hands go up. And then I would ask people, you know, how many of you have seen a business plan before? You know, almost all the hands go up. How many of you have ever seen a business plan without a competitive analysis? And not a single hand remains, right? You would never consider starting a business without surveying the landscape, seeing who's out there, you know, how they're doing what they do and how you're going to be different. But on the, on the flip side, nonprofits never almost uh, take the time to really figure out who's out there, how they could support their efforts, um, you know, and if they're convinced that they're doing something differently, start their own thing. And I think that's compounded by the fact that because they're sort of building the plane while flying it, even though so many people have come before them, 
um, that they're not in contact and they're not able to benefit from the lessons learned of the sector's veterans, whether that's about the, the how-to pieces or almost more importantly, the how-not-to, uh, as well as collaborating with people that are basically trying to achieve the same mission as yourself. Um, and so for me, I think the, the idea that we share so many challenges and obstacles in common, that we have a huge amount to learn from each other, and the way that Kay Sprinkle Grace, one of the contributors who wrote about individual donors, uh, puts it, is that we need to, to turn our silos on their sides and turn them into pipelines, right? So how do we actually get outside of our own causes, our own organizations, our own visions, and really focus on the bigger picture of what we're trying to achieve in the world, and how can we learn from one another in order to, to advance that goal? And is it your sense, even in today's landscape, that there are still nonprofit business plans that are not taking into account uh, the, the redundancy uh, present in the market? Oh, yeah, I think that's the norm. I think it's exceptional when a nonprofit does take the time to actually do their homework and figure out who else is out there and uh, ideally contact them to see if, if we could support them. Uh, you know, the, the Bill Clinton quote is that we need to seek first to collaborate and only then to lead. And I don't think we do that often enough. Uh, and as, uh, as hard as it is for me to say, sometimes I think of the nonprofit sector as ego-driven, where it's kind of my cause and my organization versus the cause. You know, your mom gets sick and you want to run out and start an organization to cure a disease or you know, as opposed to seeing who else is out there and can I support their cause? Can I join their board or volunteer or donate uh, and possibly advance the goals that I want? Um, and, and I think it's really, really common for people to just dive in the deep end and say, I'm starting a group to blank, uh, you know, save the blank or fix the blank or heal the blank, um, you know, without really understanding the landscape. And I think that's a critical error that the vast majority of nonprofits make when they're getting started. I find myself in a bit of a quandary here because, Darian, I, I agree with you. I absolutely see the same things, and I feel like I have to play a bit of the the other voice in the room, which is, I mean, tell me a sector that's not ego-driven. Show me a leader that at some level doesn't want their name on the billboard. If we were talking mm -hmm. about where I'm sitting right now, which is in San Francisco, Stone's Throw, Silicon Valley – I mean, we don't need another Uber. We don't need another WeWork. Yet there's somebody down the block. I'm meeting with him next week. He's creating one of those things. And we don't put that same type of tenor and, and expectation on somebody starting in, in Silicon Valley. Why do you think that is? You know, I think that's a really good question that I don't necessarily have a clear answer to. I think part of it is cultural and there's just not a culture of taking a regimented approach uh, to running a nonprofit, to starting or running a nonprofit. Again, people have some kind of episode in their life. They get, you know, what some people call the spear through the chest moment, where they just decide to devote their their life or at least the next few years to a certain cause, um, and then they just run out and go do it. And and that's great that they have that passion, but they don't have the the acumen or the reserve or the rigor that most business leaders have when before they get started, they take their time to do some, some homework first. Um, you know, one, I was talking to one person about this and he talked about this notion that, you know, you'll see, uh, you know, four different Baptist churches on the same corner, um, you know, and so there's kind of a culture where it's okay to duplicate efforts 
because there's an implicit assumption that you're going to do it differently. And that very much may be the case. But in my experience, it's really helpful to figure out who else is out there, ideally do some work to support them. And then in that process, you know, if assuming you are taking a truly unique approach, you're only going to be that much clearer on how it's different and why it's unique. And who knows, you might actually find a group that you like and decide to support. And the other thing that comes up a lot in that process, because I work with a lot of startup, you know, uh, early stage nonprofits, is the notion of uh, lining up with a fiscal sponsor instead of starting a new 501c3. Uh, and most people who get inspired and decide they want to start an organization don't realize that they can avoid the cost and the expense and the headache of not only establishing a, a new nonprofit with the IRS, but maintaining that and keeping the board minutes and the books and all of those things. Um, and they, they really should just be focused 99% of the time on the fundraising and on the programs. And if you can offload the administration to a, a fiscal sponsor, it's almost always a good idea when you're in the early stages of starting up. Yeah, I love that tip. We used to uh, we used to put that at the beginning, middle, and end of the the do something boot camps back in the day when we were training mm -hmm. young entrepreneurs. We we're just like, do you really want to pay for all of this financial overhead before you even prove your idea works, or would you like to just get to work? Exactly, it's a distraction, basically. I mean, there's a lot that goes into managing a nonprofit. There's already over a million and a half out there in the U.S. And do you want to spend your time filing paperwork or do you want to spend your time raising money and, you know, feeding the homeless or working with at-risk youth? And that's the juice. That's the special sauce that you should really be focused on as an early stage nonprofit entrepreneur. Yeah. The, the other point that I want to draw in is that we're talking about when you're creating yet another nonprofit, we're in a space with limited oxygen. And by that, I mean, the total amount of giving is fixed to about 2% of GDP, which is a uniquely different scenario than the unlimited billions of dollars being thrown at people from venture firms mm -hmm. uh, and cycled through a system. So when you take up another breath, you better be spending that energy, I feel, in something unique that helps a target demographic and doesn't simply just add overhead. And that's what, you know, coming back to the book, actually, you know, this is... Uh, I think if somebody read this cover to cover and you're about to start a nonprofit, you might change the direction or cause someone to realize, oh, my gosh, there are so many considerations that I should be thinking about instead of just, you know, that one hero moment that you imagine. But it's hard freaking work. And this book maps it out point by point. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is, uh, you know, there certainly are some people, myself included, that have read it co cover to cover. Um, it's really more intended as a reference manual and sort of an, an operator's manual to running a nonprofit, because what I find in my experience as an executive director and a board member and a volunteer and a donor is that you kind of never know what you're going to need, right? And all of a sudden, it's time to design a new website, or it's, uh, you know, you want to launch a PR campaign, or you're trying to figure out how to raise money from foundations, or fill in the blank, you know, recruit board members, um, and you know, you need a resource to be able to call on and say, okay, how do I blank? <laughs> and the idea of the book is each chapter, there's about 35 of them. Each chapter only takes about, you know, under a half an hour to read. They're all super tactical and practical. And they're each, uh, you know, sort of bookended, if you will, by a resource review so that if you want to learn more about a given topic, you can dive deeper down that rabbit hole. 
But the idea is kind of the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule of, you know, you just need the 20% of the information that's enough to get you started, make you dangerous, and make you somewhat competent in that arena, and then you can achieve great things. And if you really want to dive deeper and go for the PhD-level expertise in raising money from major donors, for example, there's no shortage of resources there. But again, back to that idea of Google for good and putting a front door on the movement, that was really the vision behind the book in the second edition. It was really clever on a lot of levels, and I want to touch on this for the architecture of this book, to say, you know what, uh, I, Darian, cannot write this end to end. Like You certainly could mm-hmm. have summarized these points, but I don't think you could have brought in the voice of the practitioner, the person in the trenches being like, I'll tell you what, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. Mm -hmm. And you even see it in the intros of people that have been doing the work. The other super clever thing that I love here is in the way that you have marketed this book. And I'm just going to like show people a little under the hood is that each one of these authors is uniquely interested in promoting it to say, hey, I'm in a book. Like we've leveraged all of Whole Whales, like social, like we're doing a podcast right now, but you've got 50 of these folks to turn to, Mm -hmm. to push it out. It is so smart for marketing. And I don't know if you can speak to a bit more of that strategy and how we could employ it in other areas. Yeah, I mean, it's it's part of my MO because I, I employ this strategy not only with both of the books I've written, but also with every conference I organize, every program I execute is, you know, it goes back to this notion of the rope is stronger than the thread and, and many hands make light work. And no matter what my voice is and my audience is, you know, if I multiply that by an order of magnitude or 50 fold, um, it's going to grow significantly. And so what I find is, you know, I do a lot of capacity building. I do a lot of convening and coalition building work in the social impact space. And, uh, you know, whenever I bring an audience together, in this case, the audience of readers, but it could be the audience of a conference or an event, I think that it's especially helpful on both fronts, not just to me as the, the publisher, the author, the editor, but also to the audience to essentially use that venue as a platform to connect them with helpful support resources. So in the case of the book, there's the 50, now 55 contributors that are all amazing leaders uh, like yourself that are all doing great work. And, you know, some of them have firms like you have Whole Whale or uh, others are consultants or work at nonprofits. But then there's also a section of book partners, um, you know, groups like the Stanford Social Innovation Review or, um, you know, what have you that are producing really great content that people should know about. There's also the the sponsors. We had three sponsors between Blue Avocado, Nonprofit Insurance Alliance, and Salesforce that are doing great work for nonprofits. And then there's also the resource reviews. And so, you know, the book, in addition to the actual content that you're you're learning, is kind of a nonprofit support yellow pages. And that benefits the reader because above and beyond the content, they're also getting access to all this this toolbox, if you will. But it also helps to support the book sales because there's 55 people like you, plus the sponsors and the partners that are all helping to promote this thing because we all share a vested interest now. And I did the same exact thing. The model actually came from the nonprofit bootcamp I did at Craigslist Foundation, where we had 100 partners that were basically all of the players that were providing technical assistance and nonprofit capacity building in the Bay Area and later in New York City that all helped to promote the event, plan the content, identified speakers, and we lifted them up. We literally created a, a little brochure called the Nonprofit Support Yellow Pages, 
and in exchange, you know, they were happy to spread the word. And the other thing that we we did that I think is important if you're going to employ this for your book, your conference, your program, is that you got to make it easy for those folks. You know, we're all trying to make do more with less. We're all trying to, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're all very busy leaders because the demand is almost inevitably greater than our ability to fill it, no matter what our cause. And so to the extent, in, in my case, I like providing marketing toolkits, which is here's some sample copy for uh, social media, email, newsletters, et cetera, copy and paste if you like, or feel free to you know, make any edits and just making it easier for people to support you, you know, helping them help you, I think is really critical to that model. Yeah, there's, it's so, it's just designed to work, but the core elements that I saw from my side of the fence was, yes, you made it easy, and frankly, by the time you were talking to me, there was already a flywheel uh, in effect, right? This giant wheel was already moving, and as soon as you shared, as you heard me Amidar quote, as soon as you shared the list of people that had written, I was like, well, goodness, I have to be a member of that club. Uh, but the the hard thing here, and maybe you can speak to it, is the cold start. You had to sell someone in the beginning, and it's a little harder, I guess, if if it's that first time. So what is your advice to someone who's like, sure, it's easy. Once you got Van Jones right in the foreword, you just put that in the subject line, and you're like, well, I want to be in that book. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I'm I'm used to the sort of chicken and egg thing. Like I was running the foundation for Craigslist and people always wonder how do they get started in a new city? How do you get the, you know, the listers, but also the searchers, you know, and, and kind of that web 2.0 conundrum. I think for me, it starts with a vision. And the vision for this project was that there is no front door to the movement. There is no one comprehensive and yet thoroughly practical guide that covers all aspects of nonprofit management and that, you know, most people in the country don't realize that over half of the nonprofits in the country are operating on budgets less than $100,000. And so on the whole, it's a very grassroots sector. There's a lot of passionate people out there that mean well and want to make the world a better place in some very specific way. And they don't really know what they're doing exactly because there isn't, you know, uh, a, a sort of culture of, doing the homework. And uh, some people obviously go to nonprofit management programs, but on the whole, it's a lot of people that get that spear through their chest, run out and just do it. And if we can help those people be 20% more impactful, 10% more impactful, we're talking about millions of people that are trying to make the world a better place. And for me, what I find is that the people that are doing this work are really committed to building a better world. And we're all at capacity. And so if you can give people an opportunity for leverage where they can do more with less, where they can make the world a better place in what I call a low touch, high value way, they'll almost always take advantage of that. And so it's about how do you create a really clear, concise and compelling vision of what exactly you're doing? And almost more importantly, what are you asking the other parties for? Uh, and again, trying to make it low touch, high value. So with a few hours of their time, they can have a transformative impact on the world. And in, in my experience, they almost always say yes. Yeah, the other element I would say that I saw was not as much sort of ego from you. It's not a giant picture of your face on the front of this thing. You sort of took a step back. The other piece is I hear the the narrative absolutely that you have to craft of, you know, one hour of your time is going to help, you know, tens, hundreds, however many 
humans out there. And then the other is the value to the contributor. It, you made it very clear up front. You're like, look, this is a widely published thing. You're going to be out there. That's a thing. That Would that help you? And I was like, well, I've got, you know, uh, I've got many things that I do, and this is a thing that will improve, you know, uh, the work we do as well, because you just have to acknowledge that we are we are the humans, and the what's in it for me element was certainly not lost in the way you'd ask, and I would give that bit of advice also to to somebody with that cold start. Yeah, and I think that's almost even more important when it comes to fundraising, because I, I, what I find is that nonprofits all too often only think about things from their own perspective because they're so driven by the cause. They see the need, but they don't necessarily appreciate that, generally speaking, no one else is going to be as passionate about your mission as you are. And that's okay. It's human nature. It's your vision after all. But if you can communicate with folks on their terms and kind of one of the big themes of the book is that the key is really meeting people where they're at. And that's true with the foundation or a corporate sponsor or a major donor where, yes, of course, you need to talk about your work and your impact and your mission. But it's almost about framing it in the context of what they care about and what their goals are and how your organization, your programs are a platform to help them achieve their goals for building a better world. And I think that's equally true when it comes to some kind of coalition building efforts and, and you know stakeholder efforts like this book, where it should our interests should be aligned. And when you can create a model where everybody wins, then great things become possible, whether it's this book or um, you know any number of other projects or a major fundraising ask. So as we move closer and closer to our rapid fire round, I want to touch on the audiences just one more time. I know there's, you know, the folks out there creating a nonprofit or at a small nonprofit, but I think you're also interested, it seems like, as like textbook. And I can say firsthand account, this is a thick textbook and you're interested mm -hmm. in the rising generation, the folks that are in school right now uh, grabbing this. And how do you feel like this book speaks to them? Yeah, you know what the uh, the integrating the book into nonprofit management curricula has actually been a linchpin of why it's been so successful over these this past decade. You know, the way I think about it is, I would say that the core audience for the book is emerging leaders, but I do also see some uh, significant benefit to established leaders. When I think about the emerging leaders, which includes people in um, you know, university programs, nonprofit management programs or fundraising workshops. Um, but it also includes the person that just runs out and starts something. It includes some, someone who makes a transition from the private sector and decides to use their powers for good. Um, it also includes people who are shifting roles. And maybe you were a tech person, but now you're in marketing or fundraising. Um, all of those people are sort of, again, building the plane while flying it, trying to figure out how to be effective in these new roles where they don't necessarily have the experience or the expertise. And this happens often, especially given that nonprofits are always trying to, uh, you know, meet an, an unmeetable demand. And a lot of us are working in entrepreneurial environments where we have lots of different roles. Uh, but especially for students that are sort of very much intentionally looking to build their capacity, uh, you know, they, they want to learn not just the concepts, the theories, the strategies and philosophies, but they need the actual real world tactics and the tools to be able to do these things because presumably the vast majority of nonprofit management graduates are looking to go work in the sector. Otherwise, they'd be studying something else. And so 
all too often, uh, you know, academic environments are a little bit more ivory tower and less grounded in the real world. And so I think part of why the book has, has done really well in the academic environment is really twofold. One is that it's really comprehensive and that there's nothing else like it out there. But the other is that it does have this real world uh, approach. And it's not, um, you know, like I said, each chapter is 20, 30 minutes to read. And so a, a professor can give a piece of homework and say, okay, read the chapter on web design or major donors, and then launch into a, you know, whole course on that or a whole class. Um, and so I think it's, uh, it's done a lot to really help out the emerging leaders. And then in terms of the established leaders, I feel like, again, there's uh, oftentimes people wear so many hats that you might be really comfortable as a finance person, but you don't know much about IT. And now you can learn that. Or maybe now you just got promoted to be the executive director. And that means a whole slew of new responsibilities around managing the board, overseeing finances, et cetera. Uh, and being able to give people sort of a basic level of proficiency gives them such a, a, a you know, uh, such a leg up compared to the people that are just kind of learning by trial and error, which is the standard in the sector. Um, and so I think that applies equally to students as well as to nonprofit professionals. All righty. I think that was a good summary there. And hopefully I know that you also have uh, discounts for professors if there are any listening or if you are a student and say want to bring that there. Is that correct? Yeah, it's really more for professors and for people leading uh, sort of academic uh, classes and, and environments. But basically, you can go onto the Wiley website and just request a free copy of the book if you're running a nonprofit management program or you're a teacher or professor and they'll send you a free copy. Oh, that's awesome. Alrighty, on to the rapid fire. Please keep your responses to, you know, 30, 60 seconds. Uh, are you ready? Bring it on. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using the last year? Uh, we have been using Commit Change, which is a crowdfunding and online donation processing engine. Um, we've done, this is for NUMI Foundation, the small corporate foundation that I run. And so, they power our online giving, the recurring giving, uh, as well as, um, you know, crowdfunding campaigns for us. Love those guys. What tech issues are you currently battling with? Um, we are battling with, let's see, I think I will uh, answer for the Gender Smart Investing Summit where we did a big global conference last year. We're planning another one next year. And now we're sort of wrestling from a web design standpoint with, how do we sort of archive the information from last year, but really lead with the, the future looking uh, information about where we're heading? Um, so it's a little bit more of a historic, a little bit less of a historic look at our work and more about where we're heading, but still giving that context to people that want to learn about us. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? Uh, let's see here. I am planning a gala, which is the first time I've done that. Uh, I've done it for clients, but this is for NUMI Foundation, which I run part-time. Uh, and so that NUMI T, the, the parent company, is turning 20 years old this year. And so we're organizing our first ever gala to support the foundation. Uh, and it's just been amazing to see all the support that's risen up and all the different pieces of the puzzle that have fallen into place. And so it's kind of taking all of my event planning uh, experience uh, to a different level in terms of instead of telling other people what to do, I'm now in that uh, role of implementing it myself. Talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now. So, uh, you know, the, I think probably the biggest mistake I made in my career was uh, 
not realizing that there's different types of leadership. When I was running Craigslist Foundation, I started it out of my bedroom and ran it for five years. But after a couple of years, it got bigger, more well-established. We had a, you know, established programs and a great board um, after starting from nothing. And I, you know, started a transition from being an entrepreneur using the skill sets and the muscles that I have, uh, I'm really comfortable with into being more of a manager where I did not thrive and I was way out of my comfort zone. And I think I was mistakenly trying to prove to myself that I could be a great leader by becoming a great manager. And it's just not the way I'm wired. And so I think learning that there's different kinds of leadership um, was a really valuable lesson for me. Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? Absolutely, actually. I think that this is something that nonprofits don't think enough about. I did some pro bono work for the Mountain Gorilla Veterinary Project, which Diane Fossey had started in Rwanda. Um, and as I was rewriting all their fundraising materials, because it was generally all their materials were written by veterinarians, uh, for me, there was a bigger picture, which was that they were actually on the cusp of putting themselves out of business because they had restored this population uh, and they were about to transition the organization over to local leadership. And for me, I thought that was a great fundraising pitch. Uh, and for them, it was really scary to think about positioning their work as, uh, you know, on the verge of mission accomplished and going out of business. And I think it's something that can be really powerful uh, and should be a goal of most nonprofits. If I were to toss you in the hot tub time machine back to the beginning of uh, when you started your work, uh, let's say actually on the nonprofit edition part one, <laughs> what mm. advice would you give yourself? You know, I think um, that first book was such a huge amount of work. It, it took me about two years of really hard work. Um, I did learn a lesson in creating the afterword by Lynn Twist, which she just updated, um, which we applied to my second book, Nonprofit Fundraising 101, which is instead of having these 50 amazing contributors each write their own chapters, which creates a whole slew of difficulties and timelines and writing styles, et cetera, um, I based the second book off of phone interviews with the experts, and then I wrote the chapters and shared it with them to review, and that was much easier and a lot quicker. Um, and it gave me a lot more control over the content. So I was able to, um, you know, have it, have the end product be a bit more in line with what I was looking for. Um, and at the same time, I think there's something to be said for people having their own voice. So I think um, I'm glad that I was able to do it both ways. What is something you think you should stop doing? I think I should stop. Um... I, I maybe talking about myself as much. I think um, I fall victim to the, the ego driven sector myself. And I, I know that I think a lot about my role and my work. Um, and I think the more that we can be humble, the more we can be servant leaders and focus on the cause, the organization and the mission instead of our own needs and, and selves, uh, the more impact is possible. If you had a Harry Potter style wand for the industry, what would it do? I think it would force everybody who starts a nonprofit to take some time to look at the landscape, see who's out there, uh, and, and at least explore supporting their work before they start a new organization. What advice would you give to college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? I would, first of all, give them a big hug and a pat on the back and let them know that we need as much help as we can get in this space. 
Uh, and I would encourage them to get practical experience, whether that's as a volunteer or ideally as a board member. I think a lot of young people don't think they're you know, qualified enough to join a board, uh, but there's a lot of organizations that serve youth out there and that they want that young perspective on the board. What career advice did your parents give you that you either followed or didn't follow? So I think the career advice was my mom once told me that I should never really leave a job without having another job lined up. And I made a very conscious decision at an early age not to follow that advice. I've actually taken three six-month sabbaticals where I left a job. I went traveling around the world for an extended period of time. In fact, that's when I wrote the two books uh, and really spent some some intensive time reflecting on what I cared about, what my best stuff was, and the work I wanted to do in the world. And for me, it was really helpful to have that sort of vacuum, if you will, to, to, to get that clarity before I came back and then decided to re-engage in, in a particular way. All right, Darian, last, uh, last hardball. How do people find you? How do people help you? <laughs> uh, well, you're welcome to just reach out to me directly via email. Uh, my email is Darian at DarianHayman.com. Uh, in general, whether I present a webinar or speak at a conference, I always offer anybody that's interested a, a free pro bono consulting session, just 15 or 20 minutes to chat about their organizations, their struggles, and hopefully connect them to some resources and contacts that make their work a little easier and more effective. Uh, so yeah, feel free to reach out and I'm at your disposal. This is the work that I do. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with us today to talk through the book. Uh, congratulations. I, I think you've already made it to a, a top seller for edition two, right? Yeah, it only took four days, actually. So it was amazing to see the response of the nonprofit community. And uh, one minor ask I will make is for the people out there who have read the book, if you wouldn't mind rating it or writing a short review on Amazon, that's super helpful to spread the word. Um, and if you have read it and you didn't think it was very good, then please don't tell anybody. <laughs> Keep it to yourself. Uh, Darian, thanks. And also thanks for inviting us uh, to, to add our chapter. I deeply appreciate it and, and love what you've created here. Likewise, it was an honor to work with you. I've, I've admired you and your work for many years now. So thanks for your contribution being part of this project. And here's to more things to come. This has been episode 141. You can find resources, wholewhale.com slash podcast, episode 141. Tons of links and ways to find this book, which you should order and review. Thanks again for joining us. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast. And consider following us on Twitter at wholewhale. And thanks for joining us. Oh, the music. Oh, the music of GregThomasMusic.org. That is the music you should use because it's the music we use. Thanks, Greg.